Welcome back, everybody. Today, we're going to talk about Passover matters. So this is the completion of my first series about feasts in English. It's time to do Passover. So it's very strange that we're ending with Passover because Passover should be the first, as you all know. But that's just the way it worked out in terms of my broadcasting. You all are familiar that those of us in the move sort of cut our teeth on studying the feasts. And everybody probably knows that today the Messianic movement is very popular. And so people are keeping the feast. And, of course, in both cases, there's a lot of, well, nobody knows at all. I, I, I'm amazed at some things that aren't known. If the festivals, we call them the Feast of Israel, but the eternal Moeds, if they are considered as three, they're grouped in three, then you have the Passover, which includes the Passover proper and Feast of Unleavened Bread and First Fruits all together. Jesus rose on the day of First Fruits. And then there's Shavuot or Pentecost, which is the second. And then the third, the fall feast grouped together, you have Feast of Trumpets, we say in English, and then the Day of Atonement, and then Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, so I want to tell you something about the word Pesach. So Pesach is what we are calling Passover. Um, those in the Messianic movement are attempting to adopt a little Hebrew, and so they say Pesach. And very interesting to study the history of this word. So it's translated from the scripture that says that God passed over. So the death angel passed over the house that had the blood. But, you know, another Hebrew word could have been used, abar or gabar, which is frequently used for stepping over or jumping over. But Pesach, or in this case, Pasach, but is, is what's used. And the uh, source that I'm using is Cecil and Moisha Rosen, Seal and Moisha Rosen, Christ in the Passover. And they say that there is no word that has any connection with this word Pesach, but it does resemble the Egyptian word Pesh, which means to spread wings over in order to protect. And so this is very beautiful that on that night of horror, when there was payback for, you see, Pharaoh the, and the forces of evil had dealt inappropriately. They had gone back on their original agreement. So the Semitic had welcomed the Semites, Joseph's family, but another Pharaoh rose up and he didn't treat them well and in accordance with the original agreement. And the Lord says that Israel was his son. And so the Lord is protecting his children and the fact that he killed 
Pharaoh's son and the firstborn of those families because that children of Israel had been killed and enslaved. You know, so this was payback, okay? And so God passes over in order, in other words, because of the sign of the blood on the lintels and doorposts, and if uh, the Rosens are correct, there was also the basin was actually a depression in the threshold. So actually the whole door was outlined in blood that the death angel didn't go to those houses because he knew those houses were faithful children of Israel, okay? But there's so much more here. So it's not just that he jumped over them, but that God protected with his own wings the children. So Pesh, who spread the wings over and in protection. Here are a couple of other verses of scripture that follow along with this same thought. Isaiah 31 and 5, as birds flying, so the Lord of hosts, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem, defending also, he will deliver it. And passing over, and this word is Pesoach, participle of Pasach, he will preserve it. Okay, so the outstretched wings of the Almighty. Then also Luke 13 and verse 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen does gather her brood under her wings. So this is Jesus, of course, wishing to protect under his wings Jerusalem. And of course, we're all familiar with Psalm 91, where we are protected. We're under the pinions of the Almighty. El Elyon and El Shaddai. We're under the Lord's pinion wings. The Lord himself was standing guard on the houses of the Israelites. And the Lord will not suffer the destroyer to come in. Exodus 20, 23b. The sentence was in Exodus eleven five: All the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. So God must do the right thing, but he balances his righteousness with his loving mercy. And so he provides a way of escape, a kippurah or a covering, and like an umbrella, okay? And of course, this is redolent of what the Lord says in other times in the Hebrew scriptures that he covers the sin. The children of Israel are in the umbrella of the blood and therefore protected by the reign of judgment. Since I mentioned the door that was the lentils and the doorposts and the basins were all covered, then the whole door was covered in the blood. And we remember that Jesus, our Passover lamb, said that he was the door. And of course, I'm sure you've heard other uh, teachings and sermons on the Lamb of God being our Passover Lamb and the shank is not broken and that also Jesus is the unleavened bread. And in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is part, so today when we talk about the Passover meal, the Seder meal, that's actually part of the 
unleavened bread. So today, now that there is no temple, of course, it's a holy home-based observance. And part of the custom is that the housewife will clean the whole house, but the idea is to be sure there is no leaven. And of course, we know that the leaven is a symbol of sin. So after, you know, the housewife probably is working, cleaning her house for a, a week, but <laughs> the, and, and I won't go into all the rabbinical rulings and so forth, but then the husband, the householder, with some children and a candle will go and search for any leftover leaven, any breadcrumbs. And of course, the house is clean, but the wife saves some toast crumbs in the middle of a bedroom so that the husband and the children can find them. And then it's uh, ritually scooped up. You know, he has a napkin and a spoon to use as a dustpan and, and a feather to use as a broom. And then all of this is wrapped up in the napkin and then all the gentlemen go out and throw this in the fire is lovely. But the point about using the candle to find the leaven, this is, it's like we should ask the Lord to show us where we have are missing it. We know that Jesus said, beware of the leaven, uh, specifically of the Pharisees. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 through 8, spoke of the leaven as pride, malice, and wickedness. You know, we often think of, of sin as major things like bad marriages <laughs> and um, murder or cigarettes or something. You see, something outward, but the leaven of pride, of malice, and of wickedness. And wickedness means twistedness, just like wicker furniture is raffia or something twisted. Wickedness is being twisted. And I think we see a lot of that, things that sound true, but the meaning has been changed. And initiatives that seem good, but really have an evil intent. This is wickedness. He said, purge out therefore the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are unleavened or cleansed. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. And on the other hand, Paul described the unleavened bread as sincerity and truth. Hebrew word matzo, meaning unleavened, means sweet without sourness because in the day depicted in the book of Exodus, these women were using sourdough technique for leavening. You know, a very young woman <laughs> who apparently has adopted some messianic tendencies completely on her own and without a teacher. Um, so she was visiting my home and I brought out with uh, pleasure some cake that I had bought at the local Jewish food store. And of course she read the ingredients and the cake for Passover of course had no yeast in it, 
but it used oh, horrors, beaten eggs. So that's a leavening. Wait. Okay, I'm just putting my hands over my eyes. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, I'll let the rabbis discuss what what's going to count as leavening and not. But the point that I want to make is a more allegorical, anagogical, or typological point or points. Okay, so that we should live out, celebrate the feast with purging out our hearts and let the candle of the Lord and of the Lord's word search out our hearts that our meditation of our hearts might be acceptable to the Lord. Lord, forgive us. You see, so often those of us who wanted so much to, to work on sanctification, well, we've got a part of that down and then we become prideful. That's the living of the Pharisees. Oh gosh, Lord help us. And what we so desperately need is a corporate culture of truthfulness. So these gentlemen, these Jewish gentlemen who are finding the toast crumbs that they put out that their wives put out for them so that they could participate in a corporate repentance. Everybody together, the shul goes out and burns the toast crumbs and the feather and the wooden spoon and the napkin. It is not ours to decide to criticize the Jewish community and how they have celebrated and observed the Passover. On the contrary, we need to come as students and learn. But the point is an anagogical, allegorical, typological point. We need not just to have our hearts cleaned. Yes, that's true. Yes, it's true for justification, but that's not all. This is a lamb for a household, and this household, uh, us as a people, as a congregation, as many congregations, and as the, the ethnic groups and the denominations and our nation, we need to repent and become a nation of truthfulness and of exodus out of sin and wickedness and then an entrance into the promised land according to the dictates of God who is the only one who is qualified to give those dictates. Passover matters. Because there is no temple, the unleavened bread has more significance than it might have had, you know, because they can't sacrifice a lamb as a, as a Passover lamb. In fact, most Jews wouldn't have lamb at Passover. So the matzah takes on added significance. And you may not know this, but many Jews specifically have a round matzah uh, that, uh, that's uneven in edges. 
And of course, that would be how it was back in Exodus. I'm surprised at that because I have always seen boxes of matzah, you know, Manischewitz and striped matzah made in Brooklyn. And I'm sure there's matzah that's manufactured in Israel. But anyway, the boxes I looked at recently came from Brooklyn. And of course, they have machinery to make matzah on an industrial scale. But anyway, the there are piercings that go through the unleavened bread. You have to do that so that the the bubbles don't make the bread uneven and you want to be able to pack it. So if it were in your own horno, you know, it wouldn't matter if the bread kind of bubbled up like like a falafel. But if you're going to put it in a box, you need that not to happen. And so it runs through and they're pierced in lines. And because of that, there's still some little bubbles, then you see there are brown spots and on the but it's made with white flour so this is really uh, very symbolic of of the messiah's it was pierced for our iniquities and of course you know that there are four cups and let me see if i can tell you something short and definitive about that so i'm going to rely on the rosens and talk to you about the the last supper the seder as jesus and his disciples celebrated it and then moving into the last supper but before i do that i want to mention to you that there are differences of custom between the ashkenazic and the sephardic so just because we have this understanding doesn't mean that your neighbor jew is going to necessarily recognize all of this and we'll come to some of these differences and part of it is at the ending okay so there are four cups of wine in all of the traditions of course four cups of wine um, and the Mishnah says that everyone must buy and drink this wine no matter how poor you are and from uh, the Mishnah Pesachim 7 and 13 it appears that the wine was warm because the water that was put in it was heated and of course this is a great graphic uh, reminder that this is the blood of the Passover lamb and then of course there are the bitter herbs and the unleavened bread and salt water or vinegar was used for dipping the bitter herbs once and it appears this reference says that the Seth. A sweet mixture of apples and nuts was used but you will see that the Sephardim don't know about that part but um, anyway and I don't presume to to rule on that but just letting you know so it was okay after the temple was gone in a 70 that the Afikomen which is actually a part of the unleavened bread was uh, particularly used and this is more true believe in the ash and the ashkenazic tradition so the sephard the sephardics will go ahead of it and have dessert after the meal whereas the ashkenazics will have the originally the taste of the lamb was the last taste but the ashkenazics now have the a taste of the unleavened bread as the last taste so they were not going to have dessert at that time 
anyway, so at the out, so back to the Rosen's understanding of the ancient Seder or the Seder at the time that Jesus was celebrating it. So the host recited the Kiddush over the first cup of wine. This is a prayer that consecrates the occasion and the meal to God. And the words used today, probably the same words then. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, who has created the fruit of the vine. And then dot, dot, dot. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, who has sustained us and enabled us to reach this season. And then the ceremonial washing of the hands by the host. And then at this point, a servant brings in a portable table of food. And then a vegetable, usually lettuce, is passed around and it's dipped in salt water or vinegar. And so... One way you could think of it as hors d'oeuvres, uh, and maybe in ancient times that was, but there's deeper symbolism uh, of this being the the difficulty of slavery and also the sadness of life. And then the host pours the second cup of wine, but the participants don't drink it quite yet. And then there's the asking of the questions and of course, the questions have changed just slightly after the temple was destroyed. And then they sing the first part of the Halal, which is Psalm 113 and 114. And then they drink the second cup of wine. And then hands are washed. And then the host breaks one of the wafers and pronounces blessings over the bread two blessings one a prayer of thanksgiving to him who brings forth bread from the earth and the second a thanksgiving for the commandment to eat unleavened bread and then the host gives a piece of the broken bread dipped in bitter herbs and and the sweet karaseth mixture to each person there was a particular rabbi who was known for making kind of a sandwich <laughs> of unleavened bread and herbs and unleavened bread. So at this point in the ancient world, they ate the lamb. Okay. And the Passover lamb would be the last food they ate and no dessert. Then after supper, the host poured the third cup of wine. So that's what Jesus would have been doing. Right. Earlier when the unleavened bread was offered, that's when he said, this is my body. And now he takes up the third cup. After supper, the host poured the third cup of wine and they all recited the blessing after meals. And then they chanted another special blessing for the wine over the third cup and everyone drank it. After the third cup, they recited the second portion of the halal, which is Psalms 115 and to Psalm 118 and drank the fourth cup. And the Seder came to an end with the closing song or hymn, which began, All thy works shall praise thee, Jehovah our God, and concluded, From everlasting to everlasting thou art God, and beside thee we have no king or savior. So it seems to me clear that after the second cup, that Jesus broke the bread, they ate the lamb, and then he offered the third cup this is my blood and the fourth cup I won't drink this with you until I drink it new in the kingdom of heaven okay that looks 
like what we've got here. And today, as I said, there are some differences among different portions of Judaism. Okay, so it's the Sephardic who remember the Passover lamb through the Afikoman at the end giving out olive-sized pieces of unleavened bread. Doesn't match with what I know from YouTube where I saw dessert being made. But anyway, that's what this says. Okay, so the young Hebrew child who is to ask the question, he practices and he probably will even ask it in Yiddish or Hebrew. He's practiced it and that's not difficult. But what if he asked Papa, why do we eat the middle matzah? Right? Because if you're going to have an Afrikoman, then you're hiding that piece of matzah, like maybe underneath the tablecloth, and then the children have to go find it and so forth. And for a Christian, it's just so obvious. <laughs> you take the middle piece of unleavened bread and wrap it in a napkin and hide it and find it after the Passover meal. It's just the symbolism of the second part of the Trinity dying and rising again, you know, is obvious to a Christian. Wonderful. But for Jew, Passover is reminding them that they were slaves to Pharaoh and thanking God that they are free through the power of the Almighty. And each one is commanded, each person is commanded to observe it as if they themselves were free and not as if somebody a long time ago. And we should come to that feast also because, yes, we are free in Christ spiritually but look we're free literally too you know two millennia have gone past Jesus but there is nothing in the whole world like the Exodus story and the people that were created through the giving of the law and the freedom and the respect and the honor accorded to all those who are made in the image of God and and then Jesus is very much in that same line so we were made free we are made a people and equality and freedom and really prosperity emanated from that point in a culture, uh, the Hellenic culture, where the majority of people were slaves, you simply could not say that a slave was not a human being when you knelt at the same altar with, with that person. And so equality and freedom and prosperity based on science <laughs> emanated from from this meal, from Jesus' sacrifice, and from the, the very Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, that came out of the Seder and spread most surely and 
quickly first across Europe and then into the United States. And we have had what prosperity and freedom that we have had in the Western world, well, in the Eastern world too, because of this trajectory from Passover through Jesus to now. Passover matters today. That's what I want to talk to you about. So Passover, Pesh, unleavened bread and first fruits, Jesus being the first fruits. And if Jesus is the first fruits, honey, there's a harvest and we're in it. Hallelujah. It matters today. There is a pattern and God works in patterns. That's why we have the feasts. We, we, that's why we remember salvation history. And part of this pattern is the trial of Jesus. And I would like to do a full, you know, walking through of all of the illegalities that were engaged in in that trial. For instance, the Sanhedrin could not meet at night. You cannot have a trial at night, but you know that's what happened. <laughs> and there are many, many more. And somebody did a full legal study that just, you know, you have to have two witnesses at least that agree on the charges, and that didn't happen, and so forth and so on. And so the trial of Jesus was, in many respects, illegal. And of course, we know that Jesus was the perfect sinless lamb. He was absolutely perfect. And Pilate himself says this, I find no fault in him. Pilate, not just the, the Sanhedrin, but Pilate, I find no fault in him. And then he says, later on in the conversation, what is truth? Ha! Yeah, he's not saying, well, what is truth? But even if he did, it's based on the cultural understanding. Well, what is truth? And then he allows him to be crucified. This pattern is what we see today. We see the guilty being not adjudicated. And we see the guiltless being adjudicated on charges that we know are not true. Passover matters today. If this becomes the pattern, we're in deep trouble. And it, it is the pattern today because we are in a culture that has become unmoored from the truth. They don't believe any longer in this salvation history. They don't believe any longer that they themselves have been freed from slavery through the power of Christ. That's, you know, back in... Europe in the Middle Ages. While many people may not have understood it, all respected that story. And in decades before in, in the United States, people probably did know the story and probably did themselves adhere to it wholeheartedly. But those few who did not, very few of them would have gainsayed. But today ah uh, well we have quite a few christians in our nation but i don't know how many understand or how many are wholehearted about it including our pastors P 
Passover means something today. We have once again gone after the babies. Rachel is crying for her children today. Our children have been slaughtered today, and we need another Pua and who was the other midwife <laughs> today to save our children. And then those children that are born are in hard slavery, being literally and figuratively offered to pagan gods and enslaved. And certainly our mothers and our fathers are working to make bricks without straw. And the elite are highly enriched by their labors or their taxations. Passover matters today. The death angel comes, not because the Jews ask for it. In fact, the Seder says, no, we do not hate Egyptians. <laughs> no, we do not pray for the death angel. But the death angel comes because it is in the nature of things, a payback, justice. But God stretches his wings out to protect those who are his children. And we remember the flight from Egypt, that there was no time to let the bread rise. That's why there is unleavened bread. So we remember the night of Passover, remember with unleavened bread, and we remember also first fruits. When there was an empty tomb, Hallelujah. Passover matters today. Passover matters today. We cannot go without a cultural memory of the Exodus. And we don't want to go without walking in Jesus. Be strengthened. Be strengthened. Yes, the night is dark. The night is very dark, but we know the power of resurrection. Do not think that Passover is merely about the prayer of salvation and justification, and then we can dust off our hands and go on and talk about the fall feasts. No, Passover is the initiation of freedom from slavery and into the law, the making of the people. That's the story in Exodus. Well, there is a feast day of Simcha's Torah that we would celebrate the, the, um, the Torah, but it's not one of the seven feasts. Okay, but I want to tell you a Passover matters today. It's dark, but there is a light in Goshen. And there is a difference between Goshen and Egypt. You understand, typologically, we love Egyptians. <laughs> and may they be grafted in, just as Europeans are. Okay? Hallelujah. And then let's not forget first fruits. Don't forget first fruits. 
if you're in the messianic movement and you fail to realize the messiah has coming you need a good swift kick in the behind and if you think that you know all about jesus the pattern son let me remind you if we're going to build it according to the pattern we better study the pattern study jesus and we have failed to do that so let us repent clean out the leaven in our heart so we can share the feast in all joy thank you lord we cannot do away with jesus or with the exodus amen blessed art thou king of the universe